You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. My name is Mel Burks, and today we're taking a look at the direct lending market in Europe and what the opportunities are for Australian institutional investors. To help us understand this, we have Patrick Marshall, Head of Private Debt and CLOs at Federated Hermes, joining us today. Welcome, Patrick. Hello. So tell me, Patrick, what are the different types of strategies in European direct lending and what are the risks and benefits associated with those strategies? There's three broad strategies in the European direct lending landscape. There is the uh, people who do loans to uh, at, at the mezzanine level, uh, which is at the bottom of the debt capital structure. It is the strategy that has the highest reward. Uh, you can expect to get an IR in excess of 10%. The problem is it's clearly the riskiest because it's at the bottom of the capital structure. And in a downside environment, you could expect a recovery of between zero and 10%. Actually, in the current COVID uh, pandemic, we've seen recoveries closer to, to, to zero. Then the majority of the market um, is involved in the unitranche um, strategy. That is a blended loan that blends both the senior secured loan and the mezzanine into one tranche. So it is it sits at the top of the capital structure, but it goes deeper into uh, the capital structure of the company. Um, usually you would only have about 30% uh, equity protecting your loan. And, and therefore, um, you are more at risk if there is a downside scenario because you've got less equity buffer. To be totally honest, Unitranch has not been tested in a real pandemic. So um, the rating agencies speak of recoveries of 50, uh, maybe 60%. I actually think it's going to be a little bit less. Um, and that's purely because the the flexibility that unitranche lenders provide in certain loans means that the restructuring process, if there needs to be one, is delayed and therefore uh, recoveries are, are, are lowest. And then the final strategy is the traditional banking senior debt, top of the capital structure, loan to value of about maximum 50%, um, usually uh, a strategy with uh, um, lots of uh, lender protection rights. So that type of loan uh, in a downside scenario, would it, you would expect to get 75 to 80% um, recovery, depending on which European jurisdiction you're lending in, um, whilst the Unitranche, uh, which has a, um, a sort of rate of return of 7 to 8% compared to the uh, 5 to 6% of senior debt, uh, has a, a far lower recovery. So on the union tranche, I'm just interested because you're saying at this stage it's not yet come into play because of this sort of yeah. delay of um, uh, issues emerging, I guess, as a simple way of expressing it. Do you have a sense of when those who hold those, those debts will start to see some of that impact come through? So I, th I think the the unit tranche loans are going to be tested as this pandemic continues. Mm. Um, clearly, when the pandemic started, we saw uh, many defaults in what I would call cyclical industries, um, retail, mm. travel, leisure. 
um, which were immediately impacted by, by lockdowns. Um, what has been the strategy of many unit charge lenders, which is one I don't at all agree with, has been to, for want of a better word, kick the can down the road by um, increasing certain covenants and, 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 and accessing uh, government liquidity support schemes to, to, to help companies. Um, I think that as government support schemes are, are withdrawn uh, and companies are continuing to, to struggle, in, we're going to see um, defaults arising and at that point we're going to be able to really ascertain what the recoveries are like. Yeah, really, but it, really it, it's, it. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, you've got to remember though that the recoveries are going to be impacted by a number of things. First of all, loans are bespoke agreements. So mm. the protections lenders have is different from loan agreement to loan agreement, mm. uh, which in effect impacts the ability of the lender to uh, to restructure a company in, in a downside scenario, but also the size of the company it's lent to. Um, the larger companies tend to have lower um, levels of lender protection rights because mm -hmm. in effect, the lender is competing against the capital markets so you get cut light and the likes. Um, and actually, I would argue they will have uh, smaller recoveries than, uh, than smaller companies uh, who have better lender protection rights and who allow the lenders to, to act faster, uh, quick, more quickly mm. and in a more decisive manner to mm. maximize the recovery for their investors. Mm. And, and they obviously have, in some of those cases, they have, as you've mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit about restructuring, they have more ability to intervene depending on those, depending on the conditions yes. of that, that loan. Yes. Yeah. Um, interesting. And just now I'm interested because um, some people may know this, but some others may not. With those three debt types, what is the most prevalent type within the European? So uh, it's definitely unicharge. Yeah. Most direct lenders um, are competing, I would say, about 85% of the market are unit okay. tranche lenders. Yep. Um, mezzanine has has been much reduced in the European market as a, since the, the financial crisis of 08 mm. through to 2010. Um, frankly, a lot of people lost a lot, a lot of money on, on mezzanine. And as a result, people, um, the, the mezzanine lenders sort of migrated into unit tranche lenders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the reason people don't many people do senior debt is purely it's a banking product and yes. accessing originating the opportunities is very difficult mm. and it will be interesting as because you just mentioned that mezzanines become less popular because of the most the yeah. previous financial crisis it would be interesting to see how this plays out this pandemic and in terms of that um uni tranche debt how it kind yeah, of manifests I itself yeah i i think this financial crisis is very different mm. actually to it is. Oh, eight, yep. 10. It's not a financial crisis, it's a pandemic-led mm. crisis. So there isn't an illiquidity or a liquidity need by the banks. Mm. There isn't um, mass selling of loans, which is why I put a question mark over this fashion for people to invest in, in distressed debt funds. Mm. Um, I think because this crisis is different, mm. uh, people are not going to be under pressure to sell their underperforming assets 
and they they will be able to to hold on to them and restructure them mm. uh, better themselves and maximize recoveries that way. Yeah, no, that's interesting. But that's a debate for another day. Well, that is. It is going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But you yeah. um, did mention uh, loan origination uh, just previously. So what's the the what's the importance of loan origination in the European direct lending and how does that sort of play out that origination strategy or those strategies, I should say? In answer, a direct lender is only as good as the loan opportunities he sees and that allow him to, to, to lend to the best companies. So loan origination is key. Um, one of the criticisms many US fund managers um, level at the European direct lending um, market is that the banks control the European loan market. Mm. Uh, and, and they're right, they do. The banks are in excess of 90% of the total European loan market. Um, so accessing loans for direct lenders is key. And so you have the unicharge lenders who offer a loan that's somewhat different to the banking mm. loan, who compete uh, primarily on loan terms, on flexibility. You will hear the uh, unicharge lenders talking about providing bespoke solutions to companies. Well, it means that they're, they're competing on, on loan terms um, in order to make themselves relevant in the market. Um, but on the other hand, you have the banks who, who lend senior debt. Um, in our case, we decided to work with the banks. So we've got a set of uh, key legally binding agreements with banks whereby banks show us all the loan opportunities they see in their markets. So I see, you know, um, 1500 loan opportunities a year, which mm. is massive by direct lending standards. Um, the unitranche lenders will typically set up origination teams that will bring in the loans to them. Um, the issue with that is Europe is a, unlike the United States, Europe is a very fragmented market. So a origination team based in, in Stockholm and Sweden is got a very different um, style to it than an origination team based in Rome and Italy. Uh, different sets of laws, different sets of uh, cultural um, issues that they have to men uh, deal with when they're, they're working with, with potential borrowers. So it can be quite expensive. And, and one of the um, issues with self-origination is that there is that slight conflict of interest where the originator who's promised a company a potential loan is then doing the credit analysis to see if, if that loan is is um, valid and, 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 and good enough for his investors. Um, the, I was keen to move away from that, that conflict of interest, which is in effect why I've subcontracted the origination to the banks. And that works well with us. We were able to give our, our, our lenders access to loans that they can't access normally through these origination platforms. Um, but at the end of the day, um, in order to be successful in direct lending, you've got to be a credit picker, not a forced lender, because that is a very dangerous spiral. Nor do you want to be the direct lender that gets the 31st call when 30 other lenders have rejected um, a loan. Um, so origination is key. And, and a rich source of origination allows you to be 
far more disciplined in your credit underwriting and decision making as to what types of loans you loan. The reason I um, don't do any cyclical businesses, uh, the reason that we've gone through the COVID crisis without any form of impairment losses or any of our companies coming under stress is purely that we've got such a rich source of origination, we were able to choose um, companies that are non-cyclical, uh, companies who've been far more resilient in the current lockdown. So, so given that and Australian institutional investors, what are the questions they need to be asking in that origination space? I guess you've sort of outlined some of the risks, but what questions should they be asking to uncover those things? I think the key, the key question is, the first one has to be, how are you differentiated from any other direct lender in bringing in that rich source of origination? What do you offer to a borrower that makes you different and a better lender than anybody else out there? Mm. Um, and I would um, argue that somebody who says, I offer bespoke structures or I'm able to um, assess a loan very quickly maybe areas of concern because in effect what they're doing is diluting their credit underwriting in order to 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 make themselves relevant in the market mm. so differentiation of origination and what makes you a good originator um, and then I guess secondly is understanding in what regions of Europe they originate <coughs> apologies mm. Mm. um so you've got very different risks if you're lending in Italy, where um, the legal environment is not conducive to, to lenders, to Northern Europe, which is probably the most creditor-friendly area in the world from a lending mm. perspective. So in terms of, we mentioned before restructuring experience, in, in particular relations that, that uni tranche um, loans, but more broadly, I guess, why is restructuring experience so important in dealing with private debt? Frankly, some loans will go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you can't, nobody can sit there and tell you that they will never do a loan that doesn't have a problem to it. Um, and anybody who tells you otherwise, I think, has been disingenuous. So when you're faced with a problem loan, an ability to know how to deal with the downside, how to maximize recovery and how to restructure a loan and, and a clear understanding of the different legal implications across Europe, because each jurisdiction's views are restructuring differently is what's gonna maximize your, your recovery. And at the end of the day, whatever anybody says, direct lending is a fixed income product, i.e. your upside is limited mm. and you're gonna outperform on the downside. So an ability to manage the downside is key to maximizing um, the, the uh, success of your strategy. Um, the worst place to be in a restructuring is to be in a situation where you do not have the knowledge to, um, to manage it and therefore you're forced to sell it, i.e. forced to sell the loan, I mean by that, mm. um, which means that somebody else, if they're acquiring it from you, has got to think that they can get some upside from it 
um, and you're therefore leaving value on the table. And um, that is not positive for, for your investors. Now, in my earlier career, I used to run the, uh, the restructuring um, businesses of Lehman Brothers in Europe and Asia. I was then appointed to manage uh, the Lehman restructuring in Europe from a perspective of loans, uh, bonds and real estate. And from that standpoint, um, what I would say is I've got great knowledge of restructuring. And um, that is a key differentiator, certainly when I speak to investors, about um, what we do and how we position and how we structure loans at entry mm -hmm. differently from others so that we're protected in a downside scenario. Mm. Um, you see many new direct lenders who, who come up um, be it in the US market, the European market, and even actually um, in, in the Asian Pacific market, um, where it's a, a, a very young analyst straight out of university who do the, the majority of the work and then the work is reviewed by a few senior guys. Um, that is something that I find very dangerous at the end of the day experience, having seen what happens in previous crisis is, is key to, to, to making making sure you sidestep potential issues and, and you protect your investors from, from the downside risk. And I would have uh, thought at the moment, given the current global environment, downside risk is, is, is quite high in people's uh, areas of focus uh, because, of course, nobody expects a pandemic. Uh, and, and then when it does happen, then you have to be, I guess, in a position to be able to, whatever the downside risk may be, that is obviously a, a big one that has emerged recently for some, for some companies anyway. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And there are companies that are, are really under stress for the moment. Mm. And so, slight change of tack, why would people do ESG in private markets? ESG, in my opinion, is is uh, is very very important. Uh, I know a lot of people talk about ESG um, for marketing purposes and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, in my earlier career, I had a, a clear example where uh, an ESG risk nearly impacted a loan I had. Um, a company I'd lent to. Um, there was a leakage in one of their, their containers and there was environmental pollution. And even though I was a lender, not a shareholder, we got called in front of a judge in, in the Netherlands and um, we were at risk of getting an environmental fine. And as I said, we weren't a shareholder of the business, we were purely a lender. And that was a clear example for me of peripheral risks that can impact a loan. Um, and which you need to control. And that is an ESG risk. So from my standpoint, I have always taken a view that ESG um, analysis key in my portfolio, understanding what these risks are that could impact my investors' returns. And at the end of the day, my fiduciary duty is all about protecting my investors and maximizing their returns. Um, and so we do ESG to understand those risks. So we have a three pillar approach to ESG. Um, pillar one, there are certain industries we just don't lend to because we can't control these ESG risks, environmental, social, mm. or corporate government risk, governance risks. We just, there is no way that we can control them. We don't feel that we can protect our investors from them, nor do we feel that our investors are remunerated for those risks. So we just don't lend to these industries. Pillar two, my investors 
uh, my analyst will do full analysis on uh, environmental, social and governance risk. Um, we will share our analysis with our investors. We will rate the companies and we will make conditions in our loans to try and protect investors where we feel we can manage those ESG risks. And we have a number of examples of loan agreements we've done where we have made these conditions to try and protect our investors. And then finally, during the life of a loan, if we see an ESG risk, and we will engage the company to change its behavior. Because at the end of the day, if I can get rid of an ESG risk, I will add to the value of a company. And if I add to the value of the company, I bet my investors are better off because they're secured on the company. All my loans are secured on the companies on which we lend. Um, and therefore, their loan to value goes down. And so ultimately, I guess that's a virtual circle of ESG. Um, so I think ESG is absolutely key. In terms of engagement, I'm just interested because obviously shareholders engage with ESG and you're, in, you're a lender. What's, is there a different yeah. dynamic to that? exchange of information or even the availability of information because you're asking as a, a lender rather than a shareholder absolutely um and, and and there is a key difference i don't own the business but i'm a stakeholder in the business so it's about engaging management explaining why it benefits them um the flip side is if management don't want to engage don't want to listen to you there are moments in the life of a loan what I call pressure point moments, where the company and the management need you to agree to certain things in order to, for them to deliver on their agenda. Um, and you can use those pressure point moments to, to be heard and to uh, push for change. Mm -hmm. um, so engagement is, is somewhat longer uh, than um, in the equity markets. And at the end of the day also, um, because the private lending market or direct lending market is an illiquid market, yeah. you know, once I'm in a loan, I can't exit it. So if an ESG risk uh, arises, um, I do have to engage because I don't have any ability to just exit that investment, um, which is why when I spoke to you about my pillar one mm. in our ESG um, uh, policies, is we just don't do certain loans. If we can't get comfortable with an ESG risk, we just don't do it. I'm not in the business of trying to change behaviours unless I'm forced to do that. I will just not get involved. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so just to, to sort of finish on a, a I guess a bigger picture forward-looking question, uh, what do you think the impact of COVID-19 has been on the European debt market? And what do you think Australian institutional investors, in particular, obviously our um, members who are super funds, should be aware of in that context? Um, I think this is going to sound surprising, but from a, a pure um, direct lending basis, COVID's not been a bad, bad thing. It's, been, it's proven the concept. Um, loans have uh, been far more resilient than uh, uh, some other bonds in terms of protections uh, from the lenders. Recoveries are higher than, than in high-yield bonds and other investment assets. But most importantly, what it's done is it's proven who are 
the, 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 the conservative, careful direct lenders from those who were more worried about just deploying for the sake of deploying and who are now um, facing real credit, credit issues. Um, at the end of the day, people who have um, got high exposures to those cyclical businesses like retail and, and, um, and travel and leisure today are suffering because they've got losses. Um, and I think that that is going to um, be shown um, in, their, in their performance and that's, they're gonna get punished by investors uh, for, for that. Thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. It's been a really interesting discussion, and I think Thank there you. are there are interesting times ahead, which we'll all be watching uh, to see how things unfold in Europe as um, the COVID nineteen crisis continues. But it sounds like things in private debt are. Uh, a, dy a dynamic and uh, potentially there's opportunities there which are coming out which possibly people would not necessarily have envisaged uh, given given the pandemic so that's something really interesting for our um, our listeners to be alert to so thank you again for your time today and uh, I hope you have a, a lovely day in the UK thank you I'm sure it's going to be sunny and, and warm <laughs>